Father, we are fully dependent on your spirit because your word says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2 that only the spirit of God knows the depths of God. And so, therefore, we must be dependent on your spirit to understand who you are and what you're like. Which means we need you. So we need you in this hour. We need you in this time. We need your spirit to work and to think for us and act for us and teach us because your spirit is the teacher. So we depend on you and your word says when we commit our ways to you and trust you, you will act. So we count on you acting as we count on you to cause us to trust you. Pray that Christ is exalted in your text this morning, Father, so that you would be honored and glorified for your wonderful love and your awesome grace and the power and majesty and glory of who you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How we treat each other is not only a reflection of how we feel about Jesus or think about Jesus or how we treat Jesus. It is more than a reflection. It is an actuality. How we treat each other is how we are treating Christ because we are all in Christ. And I think that getting that idea requires understanding a concept that we all know about I just don't think, I think like with most biblical truths, there is a depth to these concepts that has an endless amount of exploration that is possible. Meaning, we all know what unity is. We read, if, you, if we were to go back earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, we'd read in the first seven verses the importance and significance of unity in the body that we are one. He says in Ephesians 4, for there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so there is this, all of us have one, one faith, the same faith, same God, same Savior. And this unity, I think we all know about it. We know the church should be united. We understand the importance of unity. Uh, there's a couple things, though. One, do we understand the depths of unity, which, to be honest, I don't have time to get into today. And two, do we understand the practical outplaying of unity? Do we know what unity really looks like? Because we read in the Bible, we talk about it, we say it to other Christians, we preach about it, but do we actually live united? And there's only one way to live in unity, and I'll get to that. But I don't know if we can really, I don't know if, I don't, I know that we don't actually understand or grasp the depths and the significance of unity because the idea that we are united to God and to each other in Christ is such a profound reality that is hard for us to fathom in this earth, in this world, in this life. Like I'm united to my wife as one, but my relationship with Christ is truer and more real than my relationship with my wife. And that is the most 
like scripture literally says we become one. And that's not only in a, a physical sense, that is in a spiritual sense, that is in a, a, a re, a, the most real sense possible that my wife and I are one person now. And it's an expression of the gospel, it's an expression of the Godhead. And that unity, which I can kind of grasp in this life and on earth and in my reality, that makes sense to me. But understanding a deeper unity that we have with God in Christ is so profound that it makes us like Jesus. Like, if you think about yourself, I mean, just take a moment and think about all the things you did this week that make you kind of cringe at yourself. Like, do you have any thoughts in your head about like, ooh, I said this, or ooh, I did that, or anything in your past? Think about maybe your sin, any sins you've committed in the last month, or how many times in the last month that you've thought, oh, and you recognize your sin, or you recognize they're doing or saying things that like, you know aren't right or good, and just, and just conceive of this reality that somehow this putrid, disgusting, worthless, sinful nature that, sh- that shoots out of me sometimes somehow gets to live eternally in the presence of God because of Jesus. And not only that, but God looks at me and calls me a son. Like, you're my child. Like, God looks at Jesus and he goes, oh, perfection, beauty, glory, majesty, Oh, what a wonderful son, which we see in scripture all the time. God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then he looks over at us, and what do we perceive? God looks at Jesus and goes, wonderful, beautiful. Then looks at us and goes, eh, not so wonderful, not so beautiful, not so great, kind of gross, really wicked. Is that how God looks at us in Christ? Not at all. I mean, does he see The activities of sin that we do, yes. And every time he sees it, he just looks at it and goes, paid for, covered, killed, crushed, buried, nailed to the cross, taken to the grave, and left there upon Jesus' resurrection. He no longer identifies us as these wicked, putrid, disgusting, sinful, flesh people. That's not how he sees us. The way he looks at Jesus is the way he looks at us. He looks at you and he goes, ah, Beautiful, wonderful, perfect, perfect. You're perfect. Like, and I don't mean that in like our worldly way when they're like, you're perfect just the way you are. Not that kind of perfect. Like God looks at you and what does he see? Does he see your perfection? Does he see your activity? Does he see your goodness? No, because when he looks at your Anything, it's garbage. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Garbage. So why would God look at us and say, beautiful, wonderful, glorious, magnificent, majestic, perfection? Because when he looks at us, who does he see? Jesus. He sees Christ. We are wearing the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection of Christ. That is how God sees. So when I talk about unity, I'm not just saying God's like, well, here's Jesus and here's, here's Jesus and here's you guys. Like, first of all, that is a, another reality, another biblical reality, that Christ is our master and we are submissive to our Savior. But in a positional sense, we are united with Christ. Sons of God, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, in love, so it's because he loves us, 
He predestined us for what? Adoption through Jesus Christ. Now think about adoption. You've seen good adoptions and you've seen bad adoptions. Bad adoptions, parents adopt a child. They don't really love the kid. They treat him differently. Child grows up with trauma, I'm sure. Okay, you've seen bad adoptions. That's not a reflection of how God treats us. In fact, even good adoptions on earth are only a slight glimmer or, or image of what adoption in Christ, adoption with God in Christ is really like. When there's a good adoption, we see a, a couple of parents, a husband and a wife, maybe they can't have kids or maybe they just really want to like, you know, not have kids so that kids who are without parents will have a family and they adopt a child and they bring that child into their home and they love that child as if they're their own. And adoption is one of the most beautiful, I mean, adoption for humans. I'm not talking about our, relation, our adoption in Christ. For you to adopt a child is one of the best expressions of the gospel that exists on earth. Other than maybe getting married, that you get to show a human being what God does to us. Takes a alienated, lonely, and helpless person and brings them into their family and essentially saves their lives because they chose to love them and then spends the rest of their lives loving that child and helping that child feel like you are in this family. Blood means nothing because love is strong. And so that's a beautiful picture of the gospel because that's exactly what God does to us on a far greater scale. And so this idea that we are adopted is essential to our understanding of unity, that God looks at us and he doesn't just see Christ in us, he sees us in Christ. Like that is a unity beyond our comprehension. That God, capable of seeing the distinction between Jesus and us, doesn't. He sees your uniqueness and your singularity as a human, your autonomy, in a sense, as a person, but you are like Christ to him. So what does that mean about a relationship with one another then? Well, today's text is going to encourage us to live in that truth, to live in the truth of our unity, which is predicated on our relationship with Jesus. And if we have a relationship with Jesus, then we have a relationship in Jesus with each other. And if we have that, then we ought to honor each other as we would honor Christ. So how we treat each other is vital. How we treat each other and how we treat ourselves are both reflections of how you view God and how you view relationship to him in Christ and how you view relationship with each other in Christ. So this is a vital text to our relationships in the church. Ephesians 4.25, Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So this idea of putting away falsehood is the premise for obeying all 18 commands that follow this verse. So if you look at Ephesians 4 and you're looking at our verse, if you look at the remaining, whatever, down to verse 32, there are 18 commands in this text. I think that goes maybe all the way back to 17 even. 18 commands in this verse which are impossible to follow if you are 
operating in falsehood. But Paul says, you have put away falsehood. See how he says, having put away. He's not telling us to put away, so there's not a command in this verse. Instead, it's an assumption. He's saying, since you have already put away falsehood, that that is an assumption because he already gave us that command back in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he's basically saying no longer walk according to the flesh, which the flesh is falsehood. And he's saying, he tells us in verse 17, put away the flesh, don't operate in falsehood. And then verse 25, he is making the assumption that we already understood that command and says, having put away that falsehood already, and then he goes to give us 18 commands. So Paul is working off of this idea from the previous verses and assumes that once we put away falsehood, we will be able to fulfill the rest of the commands. And that is why he starts verse 25 with the word, therefore... Because verse 25 depends on the fulfillment of verses 17 through 24. Putting away falsehood is synonymous in this text with putting on the new self. So by putting away falsehood, you are putting on the new self. You can't actually put your old self away because your old self has already been nailed to the cross, killed, buried, and left in the grave when Jesus rose from the grave. And when you believed in Christ... That falsehood, that false nature, that old self is left buried in the grave. And what we're left with is a new self. So it's not so much a putting away or stopping things necessarily as it is putting on a new self. Putting on the righteousness that Christ has already earned for us. So putting away falsehood is synonymous in this text with putting on the new self. And our former selves, our sinful nature could only sin. But now in Christ, we bear the righteousness of Christ and now have a new self that is able to operate in holiness and righteousness. And Paul talks about this spiritual transition that we go through from former falsehood to newness in Christ in verses 17 through 24. So he talks about the old self first in 17 and then in verse 20, he transitions. So in verse 17, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is your former self. That is what your former self will look like if your former self gets to run wild. Paul is telling us that this grave description of the Gentiles is the same heart that resides in all of us. It's still there. The flesh is still here. And the same heart that rules over us is still, that sinful heart that, that has ruled over us, is still in there. And it does rule over us when we're not in fellowship with Christ. Now, Paul wouldn't warn them like this unless they were able to live opposite of this. So he, he gives us this negative warning to say, no longer live that way, which means it's possible to live that way. Though this is who we are without Christ, and this is 
who we were. This is no longer who we have to be because now we have Christ in us who's conquered these sins and we also have his righteousness in us that enables us to live as Paul continues to describe in verses 20 through 24, which say, but that is not the way you learn Christ. You see the transition? That's who you were. No longer live that way. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is who we are. And the only reason Paul is showing the believers the difference between who we were and who we are in Christ is because it is still possible to be a believer, have a new self, and still talk and walk and live in the flesh in the former falsehood of who we were without Christ and sin. That's still an available reality for believers. If it weren't, Paul wouldn't be writing this. And that is the same reason why Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 through 17, walk by the Spirit so he's talking to believers, and he's telling believers, walk by the Spirit. So there's this already but not yet truth that exists here. Who we are in Christ is an already but not yet. I am already perfect. I'm already glorified, which is why in Romans 8, Paul says that, says that we are glorified using a future complete tense. Even though that hasn't happened to us yet, he's saying we are glorified because it is so secure and so sure and so who we are in Christ, glorified in God, adopted, united in, with God in Christ, perfect, righteous, and holy. That is complete in Christ. That's who we are already, but not yet. So there's an already nature in which we operate from, but the not yet is the reason we need to operate from the already. We, we are not yet perfect but we have the perfection of Christ with which we can use to live our lives in righteousness. And so this already but not yet truth is so important because that's why Paul says walk in, in Galatians 5, 16, walk by the Spirit because it's possible that you might not. So you can express the not yet more than the already. And he goes on and says, he says walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul reveals to us that even in our new self in Christ, our flesh can still rise up and cause us to do that which the spirit within us does not want to do. And also the spirit can rise up within us and cause us to do that which our flesh does not want to do, which is righteousness. And Paul's solution is that we walk in the Spirit so that we can do what? I mean, what's the purpose of walking in the Spirit? We could say, ultimately, the purpose of walking in the Spirit is to glorify God. Well, that's the answer to everything in life. So how do we glorify God by walking in the Spirit? What does walking in the Spirit do for us that glorifies God? It causes us to obey. Obedience glorifies God. And you can't obey unless you're in the Spirit. You just can't. 
and you can't be united in Christ. I mean, we can be positionally and eternally united in Christ. No matter how much, if you and I are believers, and we get in a fight, and we totally disagree, and we hate each other. Well, maybe not hate each other. But we just really oppose each other's views, and we are just not united relationally. That doesn't mean we don't, one of us doesn't go to heaven necessarily. There is a position in which me and that person whom we are not united right now are still eternally united in Christ and will spend eternity together in Christ. That positional reality is always true. But there is a relational disunity that can happen. And the only way we can be relationally united is if we're both walking in the Spirit. It's an essential reality to your Christian life. I, I think... If God were to reveal to us a truth that we can't know and only God can know, this is just my opinion, okay? I'm not basing this on any fact or stats. I think that oh, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, and may so be, who spend a year well, really, day after day and week and month and year after year after year, not filled with the Spirit. Not, not saying they're not, that the Spirit doesn't indwell them. Spirit indwells all believers. But there's a difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit because Paul makes a difference about them in Ephesians chapter 5. So there is a filling of the Spirit that is essential. In fact, in chapter 5, he says, be filled, in verse 518, be filled with the Spirit. And that word be, that verb be, means be being. So it's a continual filling, which means we need to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to walk in the Spirit and only fulfill the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. Can we actually express the positional unity we have in Christ in the church today? That's how we live out unity, by walking in the Spirit. So the question is, how do we get filled with the Spirit? And if you've heard me preach before, you've heard me say this a million times, we get filled with the Spirit by communing with God. What does Jesus do when he needs to get filled with the Spirit? What does Jesus do all the time? We know Jesus gets drained of the Spirit, because in Mark 5, the woman touches his heel, and she stops bleeding, and it says, Mark writes, that Jesus stopped, and the only reason he stopped is because he says he felt the Spirit drain out of him. So the Spirit healed this woman apart from Jesus' conscious will. It was the power of the Holy Spirit to heal this woman. Jesus senses or knows because he's so united to God in the Spirit. He feels the Spirit drain from him and says, who touched me? I don't think he doesn't know because he always asks good questions to get to a point. But he says, who touched me? And what it tells us is that Christ, as he does ministry, whether he's preaching and teaching or, or he's healing or casting out demons, whatever he's doing, he's exhausting the spirit. And so what we find in Mark is this word immediately, which is repeated over and over and over again because Mark's telling a quick story. And he's always saying, Jesus went here, he did that, went here, did that, said this, went there, did this. And immediately he went away. Immediately he went away. Immediately he went away. He's always going away. And when he goes away, where does he go? He goes off to be alone. And the disciples are like, what do we do? Jesus is gone. When Jesus goes in the wilderness for 40 days, how do you think the disciples felt? They're probably totally like felt kind of lost, right? So, so Christ goes away. 
and leaves the people he's supposed to lead to do something far more important because in John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, the disciples come back and go, Jesus, you need something to eat. And you hear some, hear some food and he goes, you don't know what I need. I have a food that's way better than what you're offering because my food is to do the will of the Father. And so Jesus recognizes his relationship with the Father is way more vital to his, than his relationship with the disciples. But his relationship with his disciples is absolutely vital and it's dependent on his relationship with his Father, which means he has to go away. And when he goes away, what does he do? He communes with the Father. He prays. He He's in the Word. Well, he knows the Old Testament Word probably to perfection. And I know he does know the Word to perfection. So he knows the Old Testament to perfection because the New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was around. So he knows the Old Testament perfection. So he's got the Word and his Father. And he prays and he's in the Word. And what does he do? He gets filled with the Spirit, which is why Satan comes to tempt him. And because Jesus is filled with the Spirit, he is able to resist because of the Word and because of prayer, because he's filled with the Spirit. Jesus didn't perform miracles in his flesh. And Jesus didn't perform miracles... I'm sorry, Jesus didn't perform miracles in his deity. That's cheating. He didn't just heal people and cast out demons by the power of himself in his deity because then he wouldn't be an example of a perfect human. He didn't resist temptation and resist sin in his, in his deity. He didn't just go, well, I'm God. I can't be tempted. I refuse to be tempted. It's his flesh that's tempted. It's his humanity that's tempted, and in his flesh and in his humanity, he becomes dependent on his Father, which he talks about, and, and by the filling and power of the Holy Spirit in him, which he received at his baptism, he is capable of resisting sin and doing all things perfect, so that, as Paul says, he would be an example for us. Because if he does all that in his deity, in his divinity, then there's no example. We're not God. We can't resist sin and, tempt, and resist temptation and by just being God, because we're not. Instead, we have the example from Christ. In his flesh, his flesh is tempted by the power of the Spirit who resists. We have that same Spirit in us with the same power to resist sin and to resist temptation and to be united. So in order to be united, we need to be filled with the Spirit. And by Christ's example, the way we get filled with the Spirit is go away. Be alone. Spend time with the Father in Christ by the power of the Spirit in prayer and in the Word. That is so vital to your daily living. When people disagree with me, I don't actually say this or do this to people because it's kind of rude. But I kind of want to say, have you been in the Word all week? Are you praying? Because I am. And if you and I are, are, are disagreeing, then one of us isn't in the Spirit. It's either you or it's me. Maybe it's me, maybe it's you, or maybe it's both of us. But we both can't be in the Spirit and diametrically disagree and be disunited. Which is why it's so essential, which is why I preach this all the time. Read your Bibles! <laughs> Just read your Bibles. I mean, read it every day. If you've got like a prayer funk, if you've got like a way that you pray, that you like function in your prayer life, like maybe you're one of those people who like, you know, you got an hour drive to work. Like Drew drives three hours to work and then three hours back almost daily. I know he prays during that time. I know he listens to sermons. He tells me these things. I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. But 
You've got to have time where you can close your eyes, which you can't do while you're driving. So you've got to have time where you can close your eyes and just be alone. You can pray, you can talk to the Lord, you can be in the Word. Have you ever prayed Scripture? Open up the Psalms, pick a chapter, and just pray it. You can do that. It's allowed. (laughs) And God loves it. It is absolutely vital that you get daily time in the Word and prayer with God in order to be filled with the Spirit. That's how you get filled. So we wonder why our days are such a mess, why we go about every day like frustrated and stressed and anxious and confused and sad and, oh, my my boss treats me like this, oh, this person cut me off and all these things are going wrong in life and you've got all these frustrations and things that just, ah, right? Then you just feel like, like, oh, life is so bleh. I don't have words to describe the bleh, just bleh, that's what it feels like, Right? It's so frustrating to live that way, and the problem is because you don't have on the mind of Christ, and you don't have the mind of Christ because this book is the mind of Christ. And the only way that you can have or wear or put on the mind of Christ daily so your days don't feel like that is by being in the Word knowing who God is from the Word, and being filled to Spirit through communing with God. I mean, that's how relationship grows. I've said this a million times too. Imagine if after church I told my wife, I'm not talking to you for a month. You know what? I'll be nice. A week. We're not going to talk for a week. Is our relationship going to be stronger after a week? No. I have to ignore my wife for a week? That's... That's not going to help us. Not communicating, her not being able to express her feelings, me not being able to lead her and express my feelings, me not being able to serve her needs, and her not being able to help me meet my needs, and those things won't happen. Instead, we'll just become more and more distant. Yet, we'll go a whole week without being in the Word at all, without praying, without communing with God at all, and then we show up at church and we're like, oh, these messages are harsh. Well, yeah, because you don't know the God that we're talking about because you don't spend time with him. And you're not filled with the Spirit, so you have no tempering tool that can filter out the things you're hearing and seeing in life that enables you to process them properly. So when you go to work and your boss is a jerk and you don't like him, you have two responses. You're like, I hate that guy. He's so mean to me. He treats me. You know, I'm so offended. Blah, 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 right? And you can have this bad attitude. Or you can be in the Word, be in prayer, be filled with the Spirit. And when your boss treats you that way, you can be like, yes, abuse me. Because that's what Christ went through. And I want to be more like Jesus. I know we don't love suffering, but we love that suffering comes from obedience, which Paul tells us in his letters to Timothy. So it is so important that we spend every day in the word and in prayer to be filled to spirit so that we can walk in obedience. Paul goes on in verse 25. He says, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now we've established that that's only possible if we're walking in the Spirit. Because if we're not, then our flesh will rule and our flesh will not speak truth and we will lie and be deceptive. But it's more than just lying. It's more than just being deceptive. Because I look out here and I go, I don't really, I can't, 
None of you, I, I couldn't look at any one of you and go, oh, that guy's a liar. Oh, he deceives me all the time. I, I don't, I don't, well, I guess maybe I wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, maybe you're really good at it. <laughs> um, but either way, I just, it's not just about telling fibs, okay? It's deeper than that. What Jesus says to the Pharisees is that they follow Satan. They follow Satan in John 8. So you either follow Christ or you follow Satan. You're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. God's your father or Satan's your father. Now these are Jews who are the most religious, Old Testament obeying Jews in the world. And he tells them that Satan is their father. They believe they worship the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible. They believe they worship our God. And Jesus tells them, no, you don't. Because if you look at Jews today and say, well, we worship the same God. No, they don't. Because Jesus says, you don't know the father if you don't know me. So they're worshiping a false God. And Jesus clarifies, it's Satan who you worship. Satan is your father. Well, that is very different from just God's not your father to Satan is so you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin. You, you, the identifying marker of one who is a slave to sin and thus a slave to Satan is that they are liars because their father Satan is a liar and the father of lies according to John 8, 42 to 44. Now if you're thinking to yourself, well, I know unbelievers that don't lie, right? There are plenty of honest unbelievers, who do morally good things and behave properly. And you're right to a certain extent. They may intend to be truthful, but the core reality of who they are without Christ is that they deny truth. Christ is the truth and they deny him and thus all that they believe and all that they do functions from a foundation of a non-truth and therefore they can perform moral truth Though they can perform moral truth, they are without truth because they are without God, who is the definition of truth and the determiner of truth. So even though they can do morally upright good things, things that we'd say, oh, that was nice. They could give to charity. They could help someone out. They could lend you their lawnmower or something like that. They, they could do what we would say are good things, but they deny the foundation of truth. They deny truth itself. So everything they do is a lie. It comes from the falsehood of their sinful nature because that is all they have left is their sinful nature. Which Paul says we ought not to walk in since we are no longer like them in verse 17, but we are renewed in Christ. And being renewed in Christ, we can now speak the truth because we know the truth. You see the difference? He's not just talking about just saying things that aren't lies. He's talking about having the truth so inundatedly founded in the root of who you are that what comes out of you is always true. Whether it's doctrine or words, you're not only are you not lying and not deceptive, but you speak truth, you declare truth, you know the nature of God, you know who he is and what he's like, and because you know these things, because you're in the word, and therefore fill with the spirit, and therefore obey God, you therefore know the word, know what God is like, and can use that information that has transformed your heart to live it into other people's lives. 
You think about that. We're always, we're so, our, our own sanctification, our own spiritual growth is so self-centered. Even when we're trying to be like Christ as much as possible, we're always like, but it's about me. Like it's about, I, I have to be better and I want to be righteous. And those are good things, you absolutely do, but we need to look beyond the scope of just ourselves. The church as a body needs your righteousness. We need your righteousness. We need you. I need you. As your pastor, I need you to be in the word so that you know who God is and what he's like, so you have sound doctrine, so that when I teach it, you believe it, and so that you, being filled with the Spirit, you're in the Word constantly, you know God's nature, you know his characteristics, you know how he functions, you know what he does, you understand his sovereignty, you understand our autonomy, you understand our will and how we operate and our, how we relate to God, you understand the depths of the gospel, and you can start, and because you understand those things, you can then also understand why the Bible's filled with all these unique individual commands, and, and, and you start to piece together how these commands, which seem just kind of like thrown against the wall, like do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. You start to see how all of them are laced together and interwoven with one another to reveal the nature and character of God, which you are supposed to emulate. And in emulating the nature and character of God, you do so by obeying these commands. And so we start to grow in doctrine and understanding of who God is and who we are. And in doing so, we start to realize our sanctification is not just for my own spiritual growth. It's for the growth of the body of Christ. The church needs your righteousness, which means the church needs you to be in the word. Literally, you're no good to us if you're not in the word. In fact, you're, more, you're, you're, you're worse than no good. You're actually a problem if you're not in the Word. You are a hindrance to the growth of the church. You are a hindrance to your own spiritual growth. And you slow down the process of church growth by not being in the Word. It's, it really is that simple. You won't be problematic. You'll be agreeable. You'll be united. And not agreeable like in the sense that like, oh, I just will robotically do whatever Pastor Mark tells me to do because he told me to and I read my Bible this week. Not like that. I'm talking about we will both be united in one spirit and we will agree on everything. And even in our disagreements, we will work Christ-likeness into the disagreement to come to a conclusion or solution that is most honorable to God. So it's not even about just instantly agreeing. It's about how we work through finding agreement even where we disagree that expresses unity. So what Paul is really saying when he talks about speaking the truth with your neighbor is that you ought to know the truth. And in knowing the truth, you can act in that truth and live according to that truth and speak that truth. And that truth includes the commands that surround this text, such as be angry and do not sin, do not steal, do honest labor, share, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, build up each other with encouraging words, do not be bitter, angry, or vengeful, do not clamor or slander, do not have malice, be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted with each other. Forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. All those commands come from verses 26 through 32. 
Speaking these truths and living them is the operation of walking in the spirit and in, not in the falsehood of our former selves. And living this way is the, is the support of us communicating these truths. So you have to live this way so that these things naturally come out of you. Jesus says that in Matthew 12, 34, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says what goes in isn't what corrupts, what comes out, what comes out, is, is what corrupts because what's corrupted is the heart without Christ. So what we put in will come out. I mean, we heard that as children, right? When we like, listen, I remember listening to rap music when I was a kid. Still do. But when I was listening to rap music as a kid and I listened to junky rap music, now I listen to good Christian rap music. And I used to listen to garbage and, you know, adults, my parents, teachers would say, well, what goes in will come out. I was like, no, it won't. And then I would swear. So obviously they were right. What goes in comes out. If you put the word in you, it changes your heart. The Bible literally transforms your heart. We see that in Ezekiel 36, 26. That he will remove the heart of stone and place in us a heart of flesh. That's a new covenant promise in Christ. And as he replaces it with a heart of flesh, that heart of flesh is amiable and fixable and moldable. And he molds it into righteousness. We are able... To our heart is able to grow and be formed by the things that we put in it. So we have to put in it the word. So that what comes out of us is truth. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says that we have to speak truth to one another. Now Paul gives a reason for speaking this truth at the end of verse 25. He says, for we are members one of another. That's the why. Do you see that? That word for, for we are members, the word for indicates, it just gave you a clause that explained a truth, which is that you ought to speak truth to one another. And now I'm going to tell you why. The why is we are members one of another. Unity is the reason. And the why is so important because whys motivate our obedience. I do this with my kids all the time. So sometimes when my kids disobey me, usually when they're younger, um, if they disobey me and it's really like a straight-up defiance, it's like, hey, take out the trash. And then like three minutes later, they still haven't taken out the trash. I'm like, take out the trash. And then they don't take out the trash. And then I'm like, that's disobedience. So then I bring them upstairs and I'm like, stand, come here. And they stand like, six feet away and I'm like stand right in front of me and they come stand right in front of me I go go turn off that light switch come back now go turn that light switch back on I'll come back sit down stand up spin around in a circle shake my hand and they're like what and they start to get it I'm testing your obedience clearly and what I tell them is clearly you're capable of hearing and doing as I say you just proved it so what does that tell us about what you just did beforehand he disobeyed, right? And once they get the reason why I was just doing what I do and had them go turn off the light and spin around and sit down and stand up, whatever, once they understand the why, the, they're motivated differently. Their attitude changes, their face changes. They're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Okay, right? So like, because they're like walking back and forth in the light switch going, what are we doing? Not, by now, they already understand what's going on. But the point is, once you understand the why, it changes everything. Once you understand the why, then you can do your obedience with a completely different attitude and motivation. 
So understanding why is vital. And the why to speaking truth is that we are members one of another. Unity is the reason, specifically unity in Christ. And that distinction is vital. People can be united in many things that have nothing to do with Jesus. A believer and an unbeliever can be united in their political positions. There are unbelievers who I have more moral agreement with than believers, certain believers. So there's a unity that you can have between unbeliever and unbeliever and believer and unbeliever and believer and believer that has nothing to do with Jesus. But in Christ, we're united to each other in truth. So there is a, a bond or a glue that holds us together and that truth is expressed to us in God's word. So it is literally God's word that bonds us together. Because it's not just the Bible. When I say God's word, I don't just mean the, 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 the ink that's in this book in your hand. Because John chapter 1 calls Christ the word. In Revelation 19, 13, John describes Jesus at the end of time and names him the word of God. And so Christ is the human expression of the perfection of God's word. All the truth that is contained in this book is expressed in the life and in the person of Jesus Christ. So this book contains truth. That's what we're really getting at. It's not just the words themselves or the ink on the paper. It's the truth that these words convey. And that truth is perfectly expressed in a human being named Jesus Christ, who is our God. So it is vital that we know the word, that we understand the word, and that we're in the word because it creates in us truth. And the more truth we learn and understand and live out and express, the more like Christ we become. The more we honor God and the more we become united to reveal the perfect united relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The premise for Paul's why, and the why is that we are members one of another, is found in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So that's a command, essentially. He's, it's in the present tense, submitting, but it's the previous text in its context is a command that we ought to submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. The reason our unity together in Christ is the premise for being truthful in all things is because how we treat each other is how we treat Christ. Like literally, if I mistreat you, I am mistreating Christ because your unity with Christ is so profound and so real and so beyond my physical eyeballs because I look at you and I see you. I don't see Christ, I see you. I see your hair and your face and your clothes and your attitude and your voice and your body language and it's you. You're unique and distinct in your own person. That's what I see and that's what I hear, especially if I'm not filled with the Spirit. That's all I can see in here. But if I'm filled with the Spirit, I can see and hear and recognize you. I see this individuality of you and yourself. You are a particular person that, no, that is unlike anyone else, and God made just you for you. And I see that uniqueness and distinction in you. But, biblically speaking, I'm looking at Jesus. I see Christ. 
Because God sees Christ when he sees you. So how I treat you, because your unity with God is in Christ. You are 100% in Christ, and Christ is 100% in you. So if I mistreat you, I am essentially telling Jesus, you're not that valuable to me. In fact, not only are you not that valuable to me, Jesus, because I'm going to mistreat you by mistreating your slave or the person who is in you, but I also think, Jesus, or God the Father, that you're quite stupid. You have to be. Why would you choose this idiot and save them? They're so dumb and mean and rude and I don't like their voice. Um, I don't like the clothes that you wear. I don't like your shoes. I don't know. I don't like your hair. Uh, I don't like the way your breath smells. I don't like, we could go on and on. What, what are the reasons we decide not to like people? I don't know. I don't like the way you treat me. I don't like the way you treat other people. I don't know, whatever. I just don't like you. You're literally telling God you're dumb for choosing them. And God's saying, well, all the reasons you don't like that person are probably reality in their life, but that's what grace does is it covers that wickedness and shrouds them in perfect righteousness, which is how you're supposed to view them through the lens of Christ. You should see Christ when you see. So how you treat other people is a direct reflection of how you view Christ and what you understand and know about God. Which is why we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So when you come to me and say, I need your help, I go, I'm here to serve you. I'll submit to your needs because Jesus said in... Where is it? Matthew 25, 40, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And he's talking about people who aren't even filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not even talking about believers. How much more so should we treat each other like we're treating Christ if we're talking to another believer who has the Holy Spirit in them, is a child of God, loved by God, chosen by God, predestined by God, adopted by God, and in Jesus Christ? How much more should we treat them with love and respect and honor and grace and mercy and forgiveness and understanding? How much more should we treat them according to the commands that uh, we're given at the end of chapter four, when Paul says, be angry, do not sin, do not steal, do honest labor, share, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, build each other up with encouraging words, do not be bitter, angry, vengeful, do not clamor or slander, and do not have malice, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted with each other, forgive each other as God and Christ forgave you. We can only do that, which is truth, which is what we're trying to accomplish here, living out truth, can only live those truths towards each other if we're filled to spirit. And if we're filled to spirit, we'll view each other like we're viewing Christ. Which is why Jesus says, treat each other like you'd want to be treated. Well, I'm a child of God and I want to be treated like I'm a child of God. I want to be, I want to be respected, not because I'm a good person, but because Christ is in me. I want you to treat me with respect, not because I'm I deserve it, and I want to, I want, that's pride that wants the, I want to be treated like, I want you to treat me like you treat Christ, not because I'm anything special, but because Christ is, and he chose me. Why? I don't know. I'm definitely not worth it, but he just chose me anyways. 
So you have to submit to me and respect me and I have to submit to your desires and needs and serve you and respect you and we need to do that to each other. Not to elevate the person, but to elevate Christ in us. So, in order to live our lives in a way that honors God, we must also honor each other because how we treat each other is how we are treating Christ. Now, if we, I think if we just take that truth and try to live that every day, like how I think about my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ought to think about them as I think about Jesus. I ought to treat them the way I would treat Jesus. Now, there's a difference. Jesus never sinned. We sin against each other. But how would Jesus treat that person who sins against you and offends you? Well, Paul just told us, forgive them. Understand them. Help them, serve them, love them, show them grace and mercy, the very thing that you desperately need from God and he gave you. For us to live in such a harmoniously united way in Christ, we must be walking in the Spirit, which means putting off the old self that is full of falsehood and walking in the likeness of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And how we can accomplish that is simple. It really is simple. I mean, the Christian life doesn't have to be as hard as we make it. I think a reason, one of the reasons we think the Christian life is so hard is because we aren't doing these things. And because we don't do these things, life's hard. And they're like, oh, my suffering is so great. It's like, no, this is self-induced stupidity that's causing your suffering. I do it to myself all the time. That's why I'm saying it to you, because I know how much I do it. So I'm not calling you stupid. I just know how stupid I can be. I'm assuming you're the same sometimes, okay? And the only way we can fix that is if we are doing these things. We're in the Word. We're in prayer. We function with the body by being involved in the body, going to church, giving, serving, sacrificing, sharing, encouraging each other, always speaking the truth in love. If we do that, and that is only a product of the Spirit and not a product of like your own self, false self-produced morality, you're not just doing it because you're supposed to do it, but you're doing it because Christ because you love Jesus and you want to pursue Jesus and you want to honor Jesus and you want to be like Jesus and you're doing it because you know the truth of God's word and you want to forgive people not just because it's the right thing to do but because you want to show that person how gloriously awesome the gospel is and how beautiful Christ is by saying just as God forgave me of a much worse sin, many worse sins, a plethora of terrible sins, I'll forgive you for a much lesser sin because I was forgiven much. If we have that kind of motivation, instead of just this like false self-produced morality where we're like, oh, this is the right thing to do. Oh, I'm just supposed to do this. Oh, I'm supposed to help the church. Oh, I'm supposed to give. When is giving, where in the Bible does it say, well, you're supposed to give? And that's the reason, because you're supposed to. Never. What is Paul's reason for giving? Joy. You can't, you cannot give joyfully unless you just want to give. Because if you're doing for any other reason than to satisfy God and glorify Jesus, then it's not going to be joy. And you're going to give reluctantly, which is sin. Or compulsively, which is sin. Why do you serve? For joy! You know how good it feels to serve other people? To satisfy other people's needs? 
so satisfying. And the reason, there's a reason satisfying because it, we're, we're made to, to do those things. That's what the church is supposed to do and it feels good because it gives you joy. So if our motivations are right and Christ is our reason for doing all the things we're supposed to do, if Christ is the reason we're in the Word and Christ is the reason we're in the prayer and Jesus is the reason that we're involved in the body and going to church and giving, serving, sacrificing and sharing our stuff and encouraging each other and speaking the truth and love, if, if Jesus is the reason we're doing that, we will grow in unity. If Jesus is the reason we do it and we actually do it, the ceiling for spiritual growth. I don't mean numerical growth. In fact, I don't think that's it's almost impossible with spiritual growth to have such numerical growth. Not always, but usually. The ceiling for spiritual growth in this church is infinite. Because the nature of God that he wants to express out of you is an infinite nature. And all we have to do is be in the word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We don't deserve you. We know you love us. We love you too. Easier said than done. We want to be a church that's united. We want to be a church that speaks truth and lives truth and is united in truth. We want to be a church that grows spiritually. And that will only happen if we're in the word. And Lord, because of your grace, you have provided many opportunities for this church to, to be in the Word together, whether it's Sundays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays or Fridays. Um, I just pray that you would bring your people to the Word together so we would grow together, learn from you, and be united in Christ and grow into Christ-likeness, not only for each other, not only for the growth, the spiritual growth of this church and this body, but for your honor and for your glory and so that Christ would look beautiful. And so we would be satisfied in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I did forget to mention one announcement earlier. I'm sorry. No youth group tonight. No equip tonight. We'll start again next Sunday at 4 o'clock. That's all. Have a great day.